0: Well, good morning. Good to be with you guys. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Isaiah fifty-eight. That's where we're going to be this morning. Isaiah fifty-eight. Uh, before we get there, uh, have any of you ever heard of FOMO? It stands for fear of missing out. All right. Yeah. This is this is kind of a a thing that's been going going on it refers to this underlying anxiety that comes when a person thinks that something important or interesting may be happening somewhere else and they aren't a part of it or they don't know about it right it's this, this fear of missing out what's going on out there that that i might be missing out on this fear of missing out has kind of risen and and peaked in today's noisy times, I think, filled with headlines and social media. There is so much going on in the world, and a real and deep anxiety begins to set in as we begin to wonder, are are we missing out on it? Uh, and, And then we become obsessed with constantly checking our phones or leaving the TV on in the background just because we want to hear, you know, what's going on, what we might be missing out on. Another example of something like this, I think, is that paralysis that often overcomes us whenever we pull up Netflix. Do you ever experience that? You know, you're, whether it's Netflix or, or just the TV channel list, you, you know, you settle down for the evening and you begin flipping through literally thousands of options that are available. And you begin scrolling through, and, well, you've heard that that show is good, or, well, you've wanted to watch that movie for a long time, and, well, everyone's raving about this, I probably should watch it, I don't want to miss out on it, but I don't know if I'm really that interested. And then you know, half an hour later, you're still flipping through things. And you could have been halfway through a movie by now, and, and you haven't even picked anything, right? Right? And, and this Netflix thing might be a more modern example, but, but another example is just going to the cereal aisle, right? Every time you go to the cereal aisle, it's a little bit longer and a little bit taller, right? There are just so many different kinds of cereals. There's not just Cheerios, there's Honey Nut Cheerios, there's Frosted Cheerios, there's Multi-Grain Cheerios, and then there's, you know, the off-brand, whatever that might be, Honey Hoops or something. (laughs) Always some kind of, and then then you have organic cereal or gluten-free cereal. I mean, the list goes on, right? And again, you're stuck, and half an hour later, you're still in the cereal aisle trying to figure out what to get and where to go. Now, all of this fear of missing out or or decision fatigue is another word that, that comes to describe this, are rooted in a basic reality that we are limited. It's this law of limitation. We are limited beings. Therefore, everything we do, there's an infinity of things that we are not doing. Does that make sense? Right? Every decision we make is implicitly a decision not to do all kinds of other things. And so, simply by nature of being here, we're not there. So, we begin to fear missing out, right? It's this FOMO that everyone's anxious about. And underneath all of this is, I think, a spiritual reality. Every affirmation is a negation. Every affirmation is a negation. That's why the people of God have historically devoted themselves to prayer, to worship, to the study of Scripture. Each of these disciplines is an affirmation of God that chips away at some of our own ingrained habits of sin and selfishness. And I think that this would make a great sermon for some day, but that's actually not quite where I'm going today, okay? Maybe another day. Today, I want to talk about the opposite of this, because not only is every affirmation a negation, but also every negation ought to be an affirmation. Do you hear what I mean by that? Some of this is what Jesus gets at in parts of the Sermon on the Mount, right? It may seem obvious, but by not retaliating and anger and murdering someone, we are affirming the value of life, okay? By not lusting after and committing adultery, we affirm the value of marriage. Every negation ought to also be an affirmation. And this is perhaps most true in the discipline of fasting, which we talked about a little bit last week, and we're going to do some more talking about this week. Okay, when we fast, we forsake some kind of food or some kind of habit for some amount of time, but why? Why forsake it? Why a negation like this? Well, there's an affirmation that we're trying to get at. And that's what Isaiah 58 begins to shed some light on. So let's read this beginning in verse 1. Isaiah 58. Shout out and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. And yet, day after day, They seek me and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. They say, why do we fast, but you have not seen? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Look. You serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day to humble oneself Is it a day to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? is not this fast to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked, to cover them, and not to hide yourself from your own kin. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you, the glory of the Lord Shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness, and your gloom. Be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. This is the word of God for the people of God. God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for being a God who turns parched places into great springs. I pray that today as we consider your word and reflect on it, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this passage kind of has three sections or themes throughout it. Um, the, The beginning kind of verses one through five are about false fasting. Right. And then verses six through round about nine are about true fasting, what God does call us to. And then towards the end, verses 10 to 12 show us some of the fruits of fasting. So we're just going to walk through this progression together, beginning back at verse one. And so the beginning of this passage begins with alarm. He says, shout out, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet. And it really is kind of alarming what he is saying, because in verse 2, it says that God's people are seeking him day after day, right? It says that they do want to know his ways and that they're trying to practice righteousness and draw near to God. All of these are great Things. And if we only had verse two, then I'd say we should aspire to be like these people. But nonetheless, God says, announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. So it becomes really clear that all of the good stuff in verse two is only outward show and not truly reflective of the people's hearts. And this calls to mind what we read about a couple weeks ago in the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember, Jesus warns about practicing righteousness, as the hypocrites do, only in order to be, what? Seen. Only in order to be seen. And that's exactly what the people are doing here. In verse 3, they cry out, Why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? You see, fasting is meant to turn our attention away from ourselves and toward God and others. And yet, these people are squarely focused on themselves. It says that they serve their own interest on their fast day, that they oppress their workers, that they quarrel and fight. This fasting has done nothing to change their hearts toward God or others. They're just as selfish as they were before, and maybe even more selfish than they were before. After all, fasting does have a tendency to bring out the worst in us. We become irritable when we're hungry. We become restless when we've given up some kind of habit that we're so used to and we begin going through withdrawals of different kinds. But instead of responding to these things by lamenting and repenting, as we talked about last week, these people have intensified their selfishness, as they offend God and oppress others. So the the verdict at the end of verse 4, such fasting as you do today will not make your voices heard on high. Now, there is something to be said about fasting and crying out to God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that our Father does see us and hear us, but he does so in secret, right? And such fasting as they were doing was not in secret. Rather, they were like a child throwing a fit. And any kid throwing a fit for a candy bar in the grocery store line should not get a candy bar, right? Can I get an amen? He is calling out their hypocrisy. He sees right through them. And so he begins asking some rhetorical questions. Look at verse 5. Is such the fast that I choose? A day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord. Now, on the surface, the answer to all of these questions is yes. Is fasting meant to be a time of humbling ourselves? Yes, it is. Is it meant to be a time of bowing down like a bulrush, this image of a reed bending in the wind? Yes, it it is meant to be that. You know, is it meant to be a day that's devoted to and, and acceptable to the Lord? Yes, it is meant to that. You see, it is meant to be all of these things. But the point is that it is not only these things. Remember, every negation ought to also be an affirmation. The people of Israel, who Isaiah is addressing here, are fasting as an end in itself, But fasting is not meant to be an end in itself. It's meant to be so much more than that. It ought to be not only negation, but also affirmation. And I think that this word is just as timely for the people of God today. Too often the church is known by negation rather than affirmation. You know what I mean? Christians are those people who don't drink, they don't have sex, they don't swear, they don't, you name it, right? Christians are the people who don't do all kinds of things. The church is known for the things we're not supposed to do, right? And somehow, we have become sort of a moral police, dishing out judgment left and right, and here's the deal, it's true that some of these things are things that we ought not participate in. But I truly hope that we are a people who aren't just known for what we're not, but rather a people known for who we are. A people who aren't just known by pseudo-righteousness, right? But rather by true righteousness, which if you remember some of the things we've been talking about, righteousness includes justice. These are actually the same Greek word, righteousness and justice. So yes, fasting is a time to bow down and to be humble, but it's so much more than that. That alone is really just a false fast. The fast of the hypocrites. But God calls his people to a true fast. Not only to personal righteousness, but to holistic justice. And so we look at true fasting. Look at verse 6. He says, "...is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, and to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. This is a powerful and really radical picture of justice. It uses the image of a yoke. Are you familiar with this? This isn't talking about eggs. Um, That's totally different word. I've got a photo, uh, if, if we can click. There it is. This is a yoke. It's the wooden bar that the work animals are tied to, to connect them to a plow. Right. So this is a yoke. It was a common tool in the ancient world, and it's still a common tool in many parts of the world today. And Isaiah uses this as a picture of injustice. He says that people are tied to systems of injustice and need to be set free from them. So the fast that God chooses is this, to loose the bonds of injustice, right? To undo the straps of the yoke and to let the oppressed go free. But it doesn't stop there, does it? The call is even more radical than that. You see, not only are the straps to be untied and the oppressed set free, but what else? He actually says that people are to break the yoke, to destroy every yoke. This means... Not only freeing people from oppression, but actually transforming the society that oppresses them. Not only negating oppression, injustice, and inequality, but affirming justice, equality, and freedom. That is what this picture is. So in what way does this kind of work for justice involve fasting? Well, I came across a story this past week that I think is exactly what Isaiah talks about here, being lived out. The most direct application of this text is to literally set enslaved people free from their oppressive work. And many of us may be familiar with stories of Abraham Lincoln or maybe William Wilberforce, big names in the 18th and 19th century movements to bring slavery to an end. But before either of them, there was a man named John Woolman, who was convinced of slavery's evils more than a hundred years before the Civil War even began? He was born in 1720. in a small town in New Jersey. He grew up as a Christian, and as a young man, he had a job drafting legal documents. And fairly early in his career, he was given the task of drafting a bill of sale for a slave. And this deeply troubled him. He ended up telling his employer that he believed slave-keeping was a practice inconsistent with the Christian religion. A little bit later in his life, he devoted his work and himself to the abolition of slavery. He would travel to various towns and specifically to churches to tell people that this was wrong. And there were some ways in which this work of justice led him to various kinds of fasting. For example, he refused to buy or even use any products that were made from slave labor. He gave up anything that had touched this thing that was slavery. Another time after preaching against slavery in a town, he was invited to dinner with one of the families from the church. And as they sat down for the meal, he saw servants working and preparing for the meal. And he asked about them. And when he learned that they were, in fact, slaves of this family, without a word he stood up and left the house and said nothing he refused to share dinner with this family or have any further conversation with them and the next day the man of that house was so convicted by this silent rejection that he freed all of his slaves To make a long story short, uh, John Woolman, who we're talking about, continued working and preaching against slavery. And that eventually led to his church's denomination to reject slavery. This was in 1758, 20 years before America's Declaration of Independence. And the members of these churches agreed that slavery was evil. And they set out to free any slaves that they had. But they did even more than this because they had determined that slavery was such a great wrong that they were not only to free their slaves, but actually reimburse them for all the time that they had spent in bondage. For some people, freeing slaves didn't just mean losing a workforce. It actually meant going bankrupt because they didn't only set them free. They paid them for the time that they had worked without pay. This is an incredible image of the kind of fasting that Isaiah talks about here. This is a fast for the sake of justice, not only giving up some amount of food or some practice, but in some cases, literally giving up everything for the sake of setting things right. Is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of injustice, undo the straps of of the yoke, and let the oppressed go free, and even to break every yoke. This is the call. So fasting is meant to lead to justice on a societal scale, but it's also meant to lead to justice on a personal level as well. Look at verse 7. He goes on to say, Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and to not hide yourself from your own kin, your own flesh and blood? See, this is another picture of justice. Not on a large scale of organizations and society, but on a very personal scale of caring for individuals. And again, you may wonder, what does this have to do with fasting? Well, the kind of care that's talked about here involves giving something up. What do you share with the hungry? Your bread. Where do you bring the homeless, your house. You see, personal justice requires personal sacrifice. So when you give someone your bread, that's bread that you're not eating. When you give someone your clothes, those are clothes that you're not wearing. Isaiah reiterates this again in verse 10 when he says, offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted. And a more literal translation of this is not just to offer your food to the hungry, but rather to spend yourself for the hungry. Caring for people in need means a certain measure of self-sacrifice. It means some sort of fast. And as I said earlier, the church ought not just be known for the things that they don't do, but should also be known for doing these things. And this is where I want to offer some words of encouragement, because I believe that this community, this church, all of you are known for this kind of justice, Throughout this past week, there are many of us who have prepared and served meals to homeless men who are staying at the Reach Out shelter. This past Friday, there are few who participated in Wildwood Elementary's Multicultural Night. And this school is a community that knows to contact us when there's a need. We're known for this. We love partnering with them to care for the students and the families who are part of the school. Something else that happened this past week, the mayor of Federal Way called together leaders from churches and various nonprofits in the area to discuss how to better care for people without homes among us, especially In times of crazy weather, like we had this past winter. And I got to go to that meeting and see that even the city government knows that when there is a need, they call on the church. They call on the church to rise up and to help. All of this is such good work these are some of the ways that we are known in our neighborhood. And so I just want to say I'm proud of all of you for being a people who do cross the street, who do partner for peace, who do, as this passage says, satisfy the needs of the afflicted. So I want to encourage you in this, but I also want to challenge you, to continue it. What does this look like, not only on a church level, but also on a personal level? What does it look like for you to personally fast for the sake of justice, right? Maybe it's something as small as instead of buying that latte, giving that money to the man or the woman you see on the street corner. Or maybe it's something a little bit bigger, like instead of going out to dinner this weekend, giving that money to the Reach Out fundraiser that we're doing. I'm truly convinced that if every family in this church gave up going out to eat once and gave that money to the Reach Out fundraiser, we'd pretty much be done. We would have raised our goal at least close to it. So what does this kind of fasting and service look like on a personal level for you? I pray that we might be a people who share with the hungry, who care for the homeless, and who meet the needs of the afflicted. So God has called out the people's fasting, And he has called them to true fasting. And ultimately, God promises that he will be there in the midst of this kind of fast. Look at verse 8. He says, Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you, The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. So the promise here is that in the work of justice, God will be with us. To the selfish fast, God says, It will not make your voice heard on high. But to the just and true fast, God says, here I am. In this work of justice, he says, your vindicator shall go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. God is not only with us in the midst of the work of justice. He also goes before us and follows behind. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. I don't know if you've ever heard that quote before. It's been used by a lot of politicians from time to time to prop up certain policies. But in its original context, Martin Luther King wasn't just talking about public policy. He was talking about Jesus. And he was talking about the kingdom of God. And he was saying that those who work toward justice work along with the full force and presence of God. So there is a great hope as we enter into the work of justice together. But though God promises to be with us in it, he doesn't promise that it will be easy. Rather than making the work easy, in verse 11, God promises to make our bones strong. Fasting is never easy. Giving up food, habits, things, ourselves for the sake of others is never easy. But God promises to be with us in it. And promises to give us strength for it. And it's worth it. It's so worth it because the work of justice is not hopeless. God promises to bring light out of darkness, to turn parched places into watered gardens. He promises to repair the things that are broken and to make places once uninhabitable a welcome home for life. Every negation ought to be an affirmation. And ultimately, the negation of our fasting ought to be a joyous affirmation of the feast that is coming we work toward justice because we believe that one day god will make all things just so as we end i want to challenge you what is something that keeps you from loving god and from seeing your neighbor Maybe that's something God is calling you to give up. What is one thing you might consider fasting from this week? Maybe that latte or that dinner at the restaurant. Or maybe it's that TV show you watch most evenings. And instead, taking time to pray for your neighborhood, for people in need. What is that one thing you might consider giving up this week? And how might that negation lead to the affirmation of God and the justice of his kingdom? We fast because one day there will be a feast. We work for justice Because God is making all things right. May it be so. Amen.